The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Joshua David Stein. He is a Brooklyn, New York-based cookbook author, journalist, food critic, children's book author, musician, artist, and father. His exquisite writing has appeared in The Guardian, Edible Manhattan, Men's Health, The New York Times, GQ, Hemispheres, Food and Wine, and many more. Mr. Stein formerly served as a food columnist for The Village Voice and restaurant critic for The New York Observer. He currently helps put together Esquire's Best New Restaurant list. His entertaining food-related children's books include What's Cooking, Can I Eat That?, and most recently, Lunch from Home, which will be the focus of much of today's conversation. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. I happened to watch a presentation that you did for Yum's the Word in preparation for this interview, and I learned something very interesting about you, and that is that you grew up just outside Philadelphia, and your mom became a single parent. And is it true that she made the same four meals for dinner for years? She did. Well, you know, I was just on vacation with her and my sister, and I think maybe she made, she doesn't remember it that way. That's how I remember it. It was Cream Company tuna buttermilk chicken, applesauce meatloaf, which is like a big circular meatloaf with a blob of applesauce in the middle, and tofu, which she would soak in soy sauce and then pan fry. And sometimes she would make a quiche for my sister's birthday and a Caesar salad, which I liked that she made because it had really buttery croutons. But that was about the extent of what she made. Okay, so... We've got a little bit of a picture of your life growing up, the kinds of foods you ate. How did you get from this world to then getting a degree in music ethnicology from NYU? How did you get from there to being truly an acclaimed food writer? I quickly learned that ethnomusicology, which is a sociological study of music, is not a very viable career path, certainly not with a bachelor's in it. I was also a dancer, so I was doing contemporary and modern dance, also not a career path. And I was fortunate enough and also privileged enough to get an internship at Harper's Magazine. So I started working in the editorial world. Then I was working for a website called Gawker, which was quite well known at the time. And my beat was, I was called the after hours editor, which didn't mean that I worked after hours. It meant that I covered restaurants and nightlife. So I kind of got to food through restaurants. And even though I do a lot of cookbooks and a lot of food writing, I'm very focused more on restaurants and how restaurants fit into society than necessarily like cooking at home. So being a restaurant critic, you eat out a lot. 
and you probably have become known in the restaurant community. So when you go into a restaurant to do a critique, do you go in costume? No. The style of criticism that I write isn't so much dependent on anonymity. So people know who I am. What I'm doing is evaluating in a sort of critical way the project of the restaurant, like generally how what they're doing. That's not dependent on who I am. As well as how well do their actions match up with their stated intentions, which again, isn't quite really dependent on whether they know who I am or not. But on, the, on another level, ever since the days of Ruth Reichel, you know, maybe she's the last one who is truly incognito. But since the internet, no one is unknown. Every restaurant in New York has a picture of Pete Wells somewhere in, you know, in the kitchen. He's a New York Times food critic. So the idea of anonymity is just kind of a fiction anyway. All right. So I can see how you moved into this restaurant and food writing world. But then you launched into writing children's books, and you also have music that plays along with your reading of children's books, which is highly entertaining, I might say. The banned books. Banned books. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my first cookbook that I co-authored was called Food and Beer, and that was out by a publisher called Fiden, who was also launching their children's imprint at the time. And simultaneously, my son Achilles was three or four, and I was a restaurant critic still, but every time I came home, we'd argue about food. And so I was trying to transmit this love that I had for dining or for eating food in general, and, and yet at home, it was always such a struggle. So I wanted to write a book that was playful about food and not didactic. It wasn't saying you need to eat this broccoli is good for you or whatever. And it didn't anthropomorphize the food either, like the food was food. And it didn't really have a message one way or the other. It was just about a celebration of food. So because I was already working with this publisher and they were launching this children's imprint, I got to publish both my first cookbook and my first children's book pretty much at the same time. Well, they are all excellent books. I am specifically talking about the titles, What's Cooking? Can I Eat That? And the one that I have on my desk that I reached out to you about because it really touched my heart is called Lunch from Home. And I wondered where Lunch from Home came from. Did you have experiences where you brought weird things to eat into the lunchroom? Or did you notice that maybe some of your children's friends had this experience? Where did this come from? Well, to be honest, I am a, a white male who grew up in like a predominantly white suburbs in Pennsylvania, um, in Philadelphia. And I certainly didn't have what's called a lunchbox moment when a child brings in a food which is part of their culture to the cafeteria and they're somehow shamed. And that's really what this book is about. And kind of equipping kids with models as well as painting a picture with which they can feel empathy about that moment. So I just want to be clear that this book actually isn't so much from my own personal lived experience. 
However, the idea of a lunchbox moment is something that through a lot of my work in the culinary world with chefs from all different backgrounds, I have had known about. And Cecily Kaiser, who's a publisher at Rise by Penguin Workshop, who put the book out, she also had this germ of an idea. So in this book, as opposed to my other books, yeah, I tell the story. And yeah, my name is on the cover, but so are the names of the heroes, if you will, of this book, who are the real-life chefs on whom the characters are based. And these stories in the book are their stories. And I feel like what I was able to do as, a, as the author was organize it in a way that narratively made sense and kind of conceptualize the structure and then use that structure to tell their stories. Well, I think that it is a fantastic springboard for having discussions about acceptance as well as cultural differences. You know, I've spent a lot of my career looking at children's health and especially looking at how children are manipulated through marketing to want or request certain foods, right? There's even a, a term for getting kids to nag or whine or beg for certain foods. That's considered a success by food marketers. But it's a real phenomena that the purpose of food marketing is to get kids to nag and just be relentless about asking for something, especially when the parent is tired or hungry and they give in and they say, okay, fine. So when children then go to the lunchroom and they're eating one of these highly prized foods that's been heavily marketed through all sorts of different channels, that's great. You're a cool kid. But if you eat something that's a little off, as you describe, you know, you've got four key characters in this book who bring cultural or ethnic foods into the cafeteria. And the kids that are sitting around the table eating their sandwiches and their traditional quote-unquote American food, and I hate to even use that term, but the foods that have been marketed so successfully, they will look down on the children that bring something that's different. And I think that this actually, this book belongs in media literacy libraries, because we have to have a way to fight back against that strong marketing pressure that children and therefore parents face. I think there's some subtlety there, however. For instance, I think what's at stake in this book is, well, a few things. First of all, I do agree about the strength of marketing and to whom it's directed. I mean, of course, I agree. It's true, and you've studied this. But I think it's a slightly different issue when, depending on the school, whether they have a school lunch program or not. Like, I don't, I guess in this book when I'm looking at it, they don't have a school lunch program. So these are all foods that kids bring from home. But so all the kids are bringing lunch from home. It's just that some of the lunches are less, quote unquote, normal than others. Once you get, but when you really think about how kids eat at most schools, most public schools, they're operating within the school lunch system, which itself is powered by the USDA. And that in turn, I think is powered by corporate interests, right? So you're you have that, basically you have interests that don't have the child's best health necessarily at the forefront. I don't know. I don't know. You know that better than I. You would know that if that's true or not. That has always been my impression, that it's about what's cheap and what's plentiful and what's filling. Taste it kind of falls away, and 
there are very stringent nutritional requirements which favor entrenched interests? Or is this kind of like wacko conspiracy theory land? Well, you're right that USDA does oversee the school food program. And that could be a whole topic that we probably should cover on this program because there have been some positive changes. And yes, they do have to meet nutritional requirements that are really guided by the U.S. dietary guidelines. But what happens is that you're right, there is a limited budget. The amount of money that's assigned per meal is, in my opinion... Like 40 cents sometimes. I don't have the exact number, but it's woefully low. The positive side of school lunch and what I see trends happening now is that we're having more school gardens. And so we're gaining a greater ability to bring food from the garden into the classroom and help children really learn from those gardens, much like Alice Waters did. She set the stage for that for a nationwide movement. But most kids in public schools, there's a large percentage of them. Unfortunately, the numbers are growing. I think it's one in five children who are living in poverty in the United States. That's probably worsened because of COVID. But when you look, if you want to see how healthy or how ready children are to learn in different schools, you can look at who is receiving free and reduced price lunches. And that gives you an idea of what the poverty level is in that school. So, you know, how many children are coming from homes where there is economic struggle? Yeah, and food insecurity. Right. And then what kinds of foods are coming into the home due to dependence on, say, food pantries? And what kinds of foods are available there? Right. And just from my knowledge of it, and I I would recommend you talking to this guy, Daniel Juusti, who used to be the head chef at a restaurant called Noma, which is one of the world's best restaurants, who quit a couple of years ago to start a company called Brigade based in Connecticut, where he goes into school districts and works with the districts in order to create healthy menus for those districts, working within the budget and working within the dietary requirements. So, yes, that is a side topic worth its own segment for sure. I will also say something about lunch from home before we get too off topic about it, that I'm not even sure the kids are looking down on them. I think it's that kids are kids and they need books like this, I hope, or they need at least models of this behavior where they can see something foreign or what they would consider weird and not react with like revulsion. And at the same time, it's totally natural for a kid to say, oh, that's weird. And I don't think we need to shame those kids either for saying that. But I think that we need to equip both them and the sort of recipient of that comment with the tools to move beyond that and accept difference and to be proud of difference. So in other words, I don't think it's like a malicious thing that kids are doing. I think kids are going to be kids and we are here to provide models for them so they can move through the world without causing harm and being true to themselves. And I think when I was doing this book, it was very important to me that at the end, no one is villainized. Right. Every kid's book I do, I and everything I do, basically, is trying to chip away at any sense of inherent shame that anyone might have. I don't want to be in the business of shaming anyone, even if I think it's virtuous. 
So in this book, the kids who are saying that's weird, ew, or whatever, they're not the bad guys. They're people that need to be guided towards more knowledge. The kindness is there. It needs to be awakened. Exactly. Okay, Joshua, let me take one break because we are halfway sure. through, and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Joshua David Stein. He is a writer, editor, and he has written a number of children's books, but the one that landed on my desk that I fell in love with is titled Lunch from Home. And we are talking about the different characters and the different foods, and we need to take a closer look at what happens. So let's talk about these four key people in the book. They are actually real-life chefs, and these individuals describe basically their childhood and what they brought to school. So they stand out because they're bringing something that's ethnic and different from the sandwich, which is what most kids are eating. Tell me how you chose these four chefs and how you got to their stories. Well, I guess through my work as a cookbook author and as a restaurant writer, I have come into contact with hundreds of chefs in my career. And I had worked with Nikki Russ Fetterman, who is the fourth generation owner of Russ and Daughters Appetizing, a store here in New York. And actually, I'm working on a cookbook with them now. So she's been a friend for a long time. Ray Garcia is a Los Angeles-based chef of Asterid, is his newest restaurant. He's Mexican-American. Preeti Mystery is a chef based in Sebastopol, somewhere in Northern California. They have been featured on many television shows. They have a book. They had a restaurant, which has since closed, but they're out in the world and kind of very, I think, very talented. And Mina Park and her husband, Kwang U, had a restaurant called Baru in Los Angeles and another one right now called Shiku. They're Korean-American. So I wanted to cast, if you will, chefs who had organically had this lunchbox moment within a different kind of culinary and cultural background. So I reached out and each one of them was so generous with their time and sending images of them as children and that's how we settled on the four that we have. You also found a beautiful illustrator, Jing Li. How did you two connect? Well, the way the process has worked at Penguin Random House, it depends on imprint to imprint. But I didn't know Jing Li's work. The art director, a woman named Maria Elias, who's, I think, very brilliant, found her and connected us. And then I would send through images of, for instance, Russ and Daughters, or the kitchen details that Mina Park told me about growing up. I had each of the chefs describe their home kitchen, and she would create these beautiful paintings based on those descriptions. And she had plenty of source material as well. That happened through the publisher, yeah. Well, the images are absolutely beautiful. And for me, as a dietitian that does child education and works with teachers and school districts, I can see this book being used as a way to say, oh, look, this child is eating this particular food. It does have a funny name. We might not have ever heard about it before, but let's go ahead and make this food in the classroom and then explore the culture 
where this food came from and then have children taste it. And what I have discovered is that when children are involved in cooking, growing and cooking food, they naturally accept it. Like if they had a hand in making it, they want to sit down and eat it. And I think that that is a way to move children away from the kinds of fast food and cultural quote unquote norms that come with our fast food culture that we see infiltrating our school districts. I I totally agree with you, but I think the uh, main component of that is lack of funding and lack of school resources. And I know here in New York, teachers would be hard pressed to find the time and the budget, let alone they're going through the regulatory hassle of preparing food in a classroom and having kids consume it, which I don't even know if they would be able to do. But they're so strapped and so underfunded and so under-resourced, especially in the communities that are at most risk for, I guess you would say, unhealthy eating and dietary habits, especially in those communities, that they would be hard-pressed to find the time to do that programming outside of what they're already trying to do. Right. You know what I mean? And like when you talk about fast food culture, fast food culture works hand-in-hand with the idea that people don't have time to cook. Right. They They don't have access to vegetables and fruit. They live in food deserts. Of course, this goes well beyond the scope of lunch from home, but all of the diet side of things is so tied to broader issues of social inequality and who the system works for and who it doesn't work for. Exactly. Even the garden with Alice Waters, which I think is great, but it's a tiny little start. But the real change is, I think, has to come from policy, from governmental policy. Absolutely. That is at the heart of everything. Even through our discussion today, you can see all of the issues that this one book has brought forth. And yeah, we must have better funded school districts, public funding for schools, and good school food, and involvement from those in the community who can maybe go into the classroom and use this book as a tool to broaden children's cultural experiences. I personally would love it. If the DOE wants to purchase a million copies of this book, I'm not going to stop them. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was because I wanted to amplify this book and all of the different messages that it brings forth so that individuals who are listening can say, hey, I want to take a look at this book and see how I can use this creatively. And I don't know if you will have teacher resources or go into those avenues where teachers go to find books for children in the classrooms. Oftentimes we need help in teaching us how do we use this book most effectively in the classroom. Yes, that's a very good idea. I hadn't thought of it. I'll try to do something because you're right. I do think that it would be really helpful for us to offer some tools or even a sheet of programming of how it might be used. Right. That's a good idea. Thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. You know, I feel like working with artists, both written and visual, is a key to changing society for the better. So that's why I really like to have people like yourself on the program who bring us a different way to think and look at the world. And these are incredibly entertaining tools. Your band books program where you have a band and you're reading to children I love Can I Eat That, which has 
brilliant fun with words. You know, if I can eat jelly and I can eat fish, can I eat jellyfish? And then you explain why, yes, you can. In fact, in China, people eat jellyfish. It's like, who'd have thunk it? Yes. I also would recommend your listeners look up Introducing the Banned Books. It's at bannedbooks.com. The idea behind that was I do so many readings in schools, and after a while, it gets a little boring, I think, for everyone. So I've always played music, so I got a group of guys together, and we've kind of set children's books to rock and roll. Not only my own, but Dragons Love Tacos and Where the Wild Things Are and all sorts of stuff. And we do a concert to books that kids are most likely to know. I think it's incredibly creative. It's very entertaining. And you can go on YouTube. I can provide a link so that people can actually see you in action. Joshua, we just have a few minutes. And I want to make sure that I open the floor to you. What do you want our listeners to know about all of your work and specifically this book? Well, generally with children's books, you know, I've done the Can I Eat That? I've done What's Cooking. But then beyond that, I've done Brick, Who Found Herself in Architecture, Lunch from Home, a book called Solitary Animals, about introverts of the wild, a book called The Invisible Alphabet. And I would say that when I write for kids, and even when I write for adults, but when I write for kids, I think the two messages I want to get across are always, when you get down to it, when everything boils down, is that you are loved and you are complete. Nothing's missing about you. You're not broken. You're not defective. There's no reason for you to feel shame. And you are seen and you are loved. Mm, That is a beautiful message to give children. And needed, I think. Absolutely needed. I would love to see libraries use this book. I would like to see this book used in classrooms. I think that the timing of the release of this book is perfect for back to school. And then you can launch into some cooking with children at home, which is a way to show love too. I'm really curious. I know you've got two sons. What's dinner like at your house? Well, two things. I eat out. I take them to restaurants. Now they're um, nine and 10. And so we go out to restaurants, the restaurants that I'm reviewing, like tonight we're going to go to a new tavern, which has a very good food in downtown Manhattan. But we eat out often, but I just moved and Con Ed hasn't hooked up my stove for the last <laughs> two months. Yeah. So there has not been any cooking at home happening. Right. But when there is, I would say my 10-year-old has become like an excellent pizza chef and he can make pizza on his own, with no help. He's memorized the recipe, the whole wheat flour and the AP flour, and it's really good. And it's like the greatest joy that I have to have my son cook. Yeah. Well, cooking for each other is a beautiful way to show how much we love each other. And your books just provide an entry into, hey, let's cook that, or let's discover that. And all of these children, the four chefs when they were children, It was very clear from your beautiful writing that all of those children brought lunches from home that were packed with love and history and culture, and it's a fabulous stage for education. Yes, I hope so. Well, we've got to close, but I want to thank you for this book. 
I need to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Joshua David Stein. He is a Brooklyn, New York-based cookbook author, journalist, food critic, children's book author, musician, artist, and most importantly, father. And your books are available online. I'll provide a link. And we've been talking specifically about lunch from home. Joshua, thank you for being my guest. Thank you. It was a wonderful conversation.